series. Um, thanks to the Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities for supporting our series. Thanks as well to uh, the, the UCSD Library uh, for recording these pieces. Uh, these recordings will be available online in about a week or so, so um, that's pretty cool. Uh, we have a, uh, I mean, brace yourself, it's going to be an incredible reading. Uh, and while you're bracing yourself, you can listen to uh, our introducers today. Um, so we're gonna have we're gonna have Maria introduce in, introduce Amina, and then Jeff is gonna ventriloquize uh, an introduction that was written by Keek. So um, that's that's the way that this is gonna happen. But I think that your introduction, Jeff, introdu introduces this concept that we're working with, right? So. Very good. Okay, uh, so, Maria, do you want to take the... <coughs> A not uncommon review of Amina King's fiction is that it tells stories in which nothing happens. And this is something that she's okay with. <laughs> things happen, but they are quiet things, King said in an interview with Chicago Mag. Quiet is another word used frequently in reviews attempts to categorize King's work, along with meditative, textured, and distant. While these descriptions are all seemingly apt, they demonstrate a resistance to simple classification that guides King's critical and creative writing. Her most recent collection, Creature, was published by Dorothy, a project that releases books concerned with framing a conversation about what fiction can do and be. The pieces in Creature have been referred to as memoir, short fiction, and confessional poetics, illustrating the possibilities of cross-genre and experimental writing. In interviews and talks, Kane acknowledges the influence of meditative practice on the quality and character of her work. As the mind is cleared for yoga, so is the story cleared for telling. Both are processes of illumination a freeing from excess that allows new relationships to emerge. She focuses on the malleable elements of fiction, often emphasizing place and character over plot or common narrative. King's writing seeks out different avenues of storytelling and pioneers new ways to access and navigate form. It is in this way that she crafts a space for her readers, one that brims with the tremendous potential of language and yet remains bottomless, ruminant, soft. Like other soft things, we may fall into it gently. In addition to Creature, Amina Kane is the author of I Go To Some Hollow, a collection of short stories from Lafitte's Press. She has also authored various curatorial projects or collaborative reading and performance pieces. Her writing has appeared in Bomb, N Plus One, Denver Quarterly, and Two Serious Ladies, to name a few. Please welcome Amina Thank you 
so much. That was a really nice introduction. Um, and thank you, Ben, for inviting me here and all of you for being here. Um, it's nice to be here. And even in this heat, I like hot weather. So I'm enjoying it. Um, and it's exciting to read with Lucy. So I'm going to read two short stories that both kind of have something to do with, um, with writing. And the first one is called The Sleeve of My Coat. We have gotten into the habit of inviting other couples to our house to play cards. And once they are here, they stay for a long time. I'm always surprised by it. At 5 a.m., one would expect to be in bed, sleeping. They relax here, maybe too much. It might be that they feel relaxed by how close we are to the ocean. In the afternoons, everything happens that can't happen at night. Time, food, a toy horse that races across the living room floor when my neighbor comes to visit with her children. We sit on the terrace, ever so tensely, almost transparent, like the tip of a plant. For a long time, I couldn't get settled in life. I remember this constantly. I think about it on the terrace. I would see a dog and think it was a cat. Then something got bigger my personality. In between visits from the couples and the neighbor and her children, my husband and I work in our studies. My husband's study is filled with tropical plants, which he keeps warm in the winters with fluorescent lights. My study is filled with books and dust. I like working when I know he is also working. I hear him watering his plants and smoking. Sometimes I'm extremely frustrated when I write, and in other moments, I'm extremely scared. I never knew it was possible to be scared while working on a story. One night in my study, I thought I was supposed to write about our house. I had never before seen our house as a strange thing. I looked at the clothes in my closet. I knew that this was writing, to look at those clothes. Later, when the couples arrived, I was distant from them. Tonight it seems like fall, but it isn't. In the kitchen, my husband is making a very involved salad. We sit talking about our work and eating, and I drip olive oil onto my blouse, accidentally. Your face is flushed, my husband says. Something croaks loudly at the window, startling me. I will never write a novel. I will never write about the couples. I will know the couples. I will know myself. What's wrong? My husband asks. There's always someone here. When am I supposed to write? After dinner, I go into one of the rooms of the house. Sitting in a chair, in antique, I feel enormous. My personality mixed with fall. My husband is calling me from somewhere upstairs. It sounds as if he is in a hallway. I get interested in my own breath, which doesn't happen very often. The curtain moves, and I like the way it matches something inside me. But I know that a curtain shouldn't match me, and that I shouldn't like it. Morning arrives, and I drag myself out of bed hours after my husband has gotten up. The room is cold and airy, but I don't care. Today there's something nice about it. I want to air out my mind. 
I find a pair of pale yellow tights in one of the drawers of our dresser. You idiot, I say to them. But I go outside wearing the yellow tights all the same and find my neighbor's daughter playing with a huge stuffed animal on our terrace. What's that? I ask. Rhinoceros, says Sylvie. She's wearing a black leotard and tutu and grabbing onto the banister. She pulls herself along it. She doesn't look like she's dancing, but she does seem to be enjoying herself. I ask her, because I do want to know, is that dancing? And she says that it is, that she learned it the day before in her ballet class. It's not dancing, I tell her, and she doesn't respond. Just like with the couples, I'm surprised at how long this dancing can go on, but I try to stay present. It's the kind of morning that's more like an evening. It's so dark outside. A newspaper blows along the street. I feel something towards it. A tree limb sways up and down in the breeze. Outside, I can see my past. Here's where I stood with a friend and talked about a movie. Here's the exact moment I knew I wanted to write. Here's the bed I slept in with someone I once loved. Here's the weather when I had bronchitis. Here's the emotion when I said goodbye. That night, I drank five glasses of wine, even though I usually only drink one. With five glasses of wine, I began to admire my life. All these attractive couples are around me. How did it happen? I made lentil soup, I hear one of the men say, as he deals cards around a table. It makes me realize I have no idea what the couples do when they are not at our house. There is my husband. He's been with the same couple all night. I begin to admire him, the way the couple is very easily in his presence. I am usually rigid, and though many couples approach me, I have a hard time allowing them to stay. I make my excuses and go out to the terrace. I look down at the grass. Inevitably, a couple comes and sits with me quietly. This is the kind of couple I am most suited for. When we try to sleep that night, my husband is like a dog or a cat, and I'm unsettled by it. A couple comes upstairs, he says. When? After you had five glasses of wine? What do they do up here? He paused at the darkness. They wanted to see your study. What did they think about it? They said they felt at home. The next day, it's warm again, as it should be. The ocean is calm, and it looks as if a shark will come out of it. Then my neighbor appears. What's wrong, she asks. When I look at you, I see a character from a book. I'm not a character. You are an annoying one. She doesn't weave. The water moves through its waves. It's you who looks like a character, she says. Which one? The one who, she stops, dies. At home I ask my husband, where's our neighbor's husband? I am sitting in his study among his tropical plants 
There's so many of them. One plant blocks out one couple. I think he left the couples and my neighbor and her children. I write in my notebook. What are you writing? My husband asks me. It's too new to share. Are you worried she's lonely? No. Will you play some music? Something pretty. He plays something stressful. <laughs> I like having to wear tights under my dress. It's because of something inside me. Their hair blowing back lightly from their faces. You'll never understand how angry I am. Today, the plants are like a painting. It's not a cry to writing. It's a cry to a future novel. Always ignoring her. People are fucked in here. Here's a novel in which I know them in a certain kind of way. Sylvie has picked up a rhinoceros and is hitting it against a wall. You're writing in my study, my husband says. Is it okay? Of course, you're my wife. When the couple's in my study, can I be here? But don't you want to be in your study with them to make sure they don't mess anything up? And that's that story. microphone dependent, so <laughs> I just feel like I have to be right on it. Um, so this story is called Words Come to Me. Even though I don't write stories, I create them in my actions. I create a feeling I don't believe in, and then I act on that feeling. I wear my puffy coat out into the snow. I walk through my neighborhood and look at the antique shops. Snow and antiques are good together. I sit in a warm place to read. The one time in my life I had to escape from something, I created a story about the longest February of my life. Here, I want to show you something. It is several cats, like a creature that won't get down from the bed. Words are coming to me. Here I am on the street with so many people. It's beautiful to be alive, to go into a floral shop in winter and look at fine plants sitting darkly in their pots. To be among a crowd hurts me. Let me see this plant, I say to the florist, and she lets me look at it for quite some time while she works in the back. It's strange how long I stay there. Now words come to me. I have not asked them, sighing, I take my notebook out of my puffed pocket and write the words down in my best hand. Though I will never be a writer, the words allow me to study a certain kind of writing. If I close my eyes, I will see my written self staring back at me. If I walk to the lake, something will be revealed in the waves, frozen up in their certainty. Did I tell you the waves freeze here? 
I will feel something I don't actually feel. Then I will fall asleep in my bed like the waves. So much happens when I am inside my mind, but I still haven't left the floral shop. I have not left the fine plants. Remember when I was kidnapped by our master and forced to be a part of his life in a way I never would have wished for? He took me to a dairy farm, expecting me to like it. He took me to a fancy party where the other women looked at me with rage and jealousy. How could they want that life? My notebook is too modern. When I hold it up next to myself, it contrasts greatly. Still, I am safe now. To look at antique furniture and shop windows instead of sitting on it. To know that no one will handcuff me to a wrought iron gate. My desk is waiting for me. Softly, softly, the books. In my apartment, I draw the bath water. I've been outside all day with people, and now it is time for me to be alone. Taking baths has always been important for me, especially in winter. I'm more receptive then. I can feel myself going out and then coming back in. It's hard not to feel connected to yourself when you're in a hot bath. I had good friends. I had you. We served food to the family we worked for. When you set the table or ladled out the soup, I looked at you lovingly. I looked at all of you this way. I wasn't able to stop myself from doing it. Once I was beaten for standing there doing nothing while everyone else worked. It's just that I really wanted to see them, I said during the beating. The bath warms me. I will be able to emerge into the room as a warm person. They're not your real friends, my master's wife said our mistress. It's too late, I thought. I know the warmth of love. I watched her pink face while she beat me. Then she pushed me onto the floor. Down there, all I had were pointy black shoes to look at. I hadn't realized how many people, how many shoes were in that room. When you lie in a field with a friend and tell each other stories about your lives, when you've explored friendship, it's impossible to forget. It comes back when you're lying on a cold floor. It comes back when you're lying in the bath. Lovingly, Juliet, Blank Page, edited by Anne, Women of the Rural Areas. This is written on a piece of paper on my desk. If you sit in my chair and look down at my notebook, my words are waiting for you. Myself, alone, in my bed, is a story. What direction did you head in when we scattered from that house like the bits of dry grass that we were? I read books now to bring myself to a feeling. When I walk down the street, I'm never sure if I interact with others or if they interact with me. I eat warm food, things other people wouldn't consider eating. Even in winter, the waves unfreeze falling upon the cold beach. I wear one color to signify something. It's been said that you can signal many things in this way, like the words you're most likely to write down, and even your education. My bookshelves reach from the floor to the ceiling, towering over my small apartment. 
A table sits in front of the shelves. This is where I prepare my food. The kitchen and the living room are practically the same. I want you to know where I am, what I look like when I am here. I want you to see what I look like when I eat. Another time I was beaten. I was sick with the flu. Our mistress held me down while our master whipped me with his belt. This happened on the porch because she wanted their neighbors to see us. It was December and I was shivering magnificently. Later, our master spoke to me in hushed tones. He said, next week I'll take you out again when you're better. Would you like to listen to music? We can go to the mountains. He always played music with banjos in it. He was always trying to soothe me. The only one who could was another servant. Only once did I see you being beaten. It was because you had tried to leave the house without permission. Our mistress asked the male servant to beat you, and he did. What else could he have done? Bloody, you sat on the back steps while a kitten tried to crawl up your leg. You let it, but you didn't acknowledge its presence. I stood in the window, looking out at you for a long time. Finally, it got dark, and then I couldn't see you anymore. Those years hardly resemble this one, or the ones in which I was a child, but all of it equals my life, making one ragged crawl across time. Now it's morning. Here I am on a walk to the lake. This is real. I wear headphones to clear out the feeling I had in the night and to change the lake to a softer place. I listen to music that helps me understand something about myself and about the lake. I want to understand the food I eat and why I like antiques and snow. Someone told me that writers are more important to me than they are to other people. Oddly, they were important to the people who own that house and I'm still trying to reconcile that. Once, in their winter, our mistress hung a laurel wreath on the front door. I had always found that door beautiful, with its wood and glass, its richness. With the wreath, its beauty deepened, and this made me feel sick. I'll buy something simple for my own door, from the floral shop, that is warmer and brighter than any house I've been in. I am trying to show the mind. I cannot write anything else except sentences. Thank you. Uh, as Ben mentioned, I'm playing the part of Keek tonight. Thank you all for joining us for this reading today. I just wanted to say Jeff is probably too collected and dashing to embody <laughs> the following introduction. I swear I didn't write this. <laughs> so while you listen to it, I'd like you all to close your eyes and imagine a smaller, more compact, sweatier, more Asian than Jeff, a tire slightly askew person reading. <laughs> I understand it's traditional to discuss a writer's awards and commendations as a way to contextualize a reading. 
and it would be no sweat to do that for someone who writes as exciting and as rigorously sculpted a prose as Lucy Corn. Lucy has been a fellow at the Writers' Conferences Breadloaf and Swanee. She has been a resident at Yaddo and at the Radar Lab. And last year, she lived and worked at the American Academy in Rome as the John Guar Fellow in Literature. Her work has been featured in Plowshares, Tin House, The Southern Review, Conjunctions, and American Short Fiction. Lucy is also a professor and teaches graduate and undergraduate writing workshops at UC Davis, where I was lucky enough to study under her. And basically, when you fantasize about the life of a young, hip, ingenious writer, well, you're probably imagining Lucy. Anyhow, I've been told fantasizing is totally not okay or a productive thing to do, especially when it comes to your teachers. But here, I'm admitting I fantasize only as a way to say Lucy has been a transformative person in my life. She is a writer and a teacher that I look up to. She's the reason I began taking my fiction writing seriously, and it was because of her I was able to attend the program here at UCSD. It would be easy to continue discussing Lucy's acclaim as a writer, but I'd like to say a few words about her as a teacher. Because while the work done as an artist is often well documented, sometimes the good work done as a teacher can go unsaid. In her comments and notes to me, Lucy was always generous and sensitive to my anxieties as a beginning writer. But what helped me in the long term was that her readings always spoke to the aspirations of the story and always suggested plan of action. Lucy was the first teacher who told me to select a word or phrase in my story and then go back through the entire thing, hunting for occurrences of that word and phrase, and make sure every occurrence was consistent with the tone and energy and direction of the rest of the story. She told me to do the same for every line of dialogue, every metaphor and symbol, and every scrap of color. Go back and make sure they're all aligned all following the same compass. Here are five words I wrote and underlined on a folder I found from one of Lucy's classes. Immaculacy, awareness, discipline, intensity, discovery. Lucy's classroom was a place where you were asked to sweat it out and where you cultivated a hunger for writing that wasn't looking for shortcuts. Writing that wasn't looking to arrive at a discovery without earning it first and its care and consideration of every word that came before. Immaculacy, awareness, discipline, intensity, then discovery. If you want to know the result of such incredible love and attention to prose, you'll hear it in a moment. But here's one of my favorite examples, a short selection from one of Lucy's apocalypses. By the time she was pronounced dead of medications, she was bloated with fluids and bubble-wrapped in the watery light of the ICU, with tubes and the green hum of numbers reflecting on the walls. Blisters like jellyfish rose on her knuckles from being pressed to the carpet under her body weight. No one's blaming the people lined up for organs. The mother and the father stood over her in every way you can think of. The father put ointment on her eyes and closed the lids. Next is a line about the father that I can't write. Next is a line about the mother. Next is a line about there and not there. 
Then on the morning of the fourth day, their daughter woke up. She made a noise through her tube. She said, I drowned? I just don't think anyone earns their discoveries the way Lucy does. Lucy Corn is my definition of a praiseworthy teacher. She's also the author of the acclaimed books, The Entire Predicament, and Everyday Psycho Killers, A History for Girls, and most recently, 100 Apocalypses and Other Apocalypses, published by McSweeney's Books in September of last year. She's currently at work on another novel called The Swank Hotel. Please welcome the wonderful and talented Lucy Cole. everybody do that exact same exercise I did with Keek, because Keek would have like a hundred, I mean this is what's, so for those of you who study with him, like he just has a thousand things going on, and so like asking him <laughs> to trace a few of them was like, um, it was really fun to watch him try to do that, because of course when you're reading him, you try to do that, and uh, I don't know if you, uh, you know, you like to be able to over a little bit and then let it spiral out. Um, in any case, uh, the other thing that was really interesting to me about that um, uh, embarrassingly awesome um, introduction is that he picked out the exact part of the Apocalypse book that is the sort of thing that I'm trying to write a whole novel about. And I don't know, I don't know, I mean, he certainly didn't know that, but the book that I'm working on comes out of that scenario. Um, um, oh. Um, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> thank you for helping organize this. Thank you for um, reading so beautifully your beautiful work. And there's going to be a kitten in mine, too. Oh. <laughs> 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 All right, so this, this book, A um, Hundred Apocalypses and Other Apocalypses, has four, um, it has like four things in its title page, like four stories. The first one is a double retelling of a fairy tale in columns next to each other, and it's about that long. And then there's, it's followed by a story that's about that long. Um, and then it's followed by a story that's about normal story length, about that long. And then um, this last third of the book is a hundred apocalypse stories. And they're all apocalypse stories in one way or another, but the, the last one is called A Hundred Apocalypses and has a hundred apocalypses in it, and it's divided <laughs> into four parts. And, um, and I've got that many to read to you. So one of the things that's fun about reading from this book is that I get to read them in different orders, hoping that they're gonna um, bounce off each other in new ways, the way that poets like to see their stuff bounce. Right. Fresh. After so many people were washed away by the disasters, there was usually someone outside the grocery store with a collection bucket. On a sunny day, I biked over, feeling good. I walked around the grocery store, especially the produce islands, feeling pretty good about my choices and my healthy way of life. Nobody is mentioning how the increasing rate of madness is apocalyptic. It's because we eat mostly corn. There are so many decisions to be made in the grocery, that cold room of consciousness. But tell you the truth, I kept asking for it. I was asking for the apocalypse. I was tired of the way things were going. I was looking forward to fresh everything. 
with the slate wiped clean, the whole world would be at my beck and call. Anything could be around the corner, I thought, pushing my cart through the grocery air. There was the aisle of condiments. There were the pyramids of newfangled soup. Everything that would have happened in the event could really be a turning point for me. Cake. She baked an angel food cake for the dinner party, which means it's as white as possible in cake, except golden on the outside, and you have to cut it with a serrated knife. It's funny to eat because you can kind of tear it, unlike most cakes. It stretches a little. It's a little supernatural, like an angel. I was watching her with her boyfriend because I admire them and am trying to make them an example in my life of good love being possible. <laughs> Toward the end of the cake, everyone was talking and a couple of people were seeing if they could eat the live edible flowers that she put on the cake for decoration. A fairy cake. She told a story about making the cake. There wasn't a lot left. Everyone was eating the ends of their pieces in different ways. And because of the stretchy texture, there were more methods than usual, and no crumbs at all. Really funny cake. I tried to imagine making the cake, same as I often tried to imagine love. I would never make a cake. So it's down to say less than a quarter of the cake, and the boyfriend reaches across the table. It's a big table that no one else would be able to reach across. He just has really long arms. And he takes the serrated knife, but when he cuts at the cake, he doesn't do the sawing action. He just presses down, which defeats the point of a serrated knife. The cake squishes as he cuts it in half. It was only a piece of itself already, clinging to its imaginary axis, and now it's not even a wedge. It's pushed down, like you can push down the nose on your face. And then he takes his piece with his hands, and I watch the last piece of cake to see if it'll spring back up, but it doesn't. It's just squished on at one side like someone stepped on it. But here's what I don't understand, is how all through it, she's just chatting with the dinner guests, and it's like she's done nothing at all. It's like he's done nothing at all. She's not looking at him like, you squished the cake. And she's not looking at him like, he loves the cake so much he couldn't help himself. And he doesn't seem to be thinking, only I can squish the cake. Or is he? I never know how to read people. But here's what else. Watching the round cake disappear, watching the people trying to make the most of their pieces, people coveting the cake on one hand and reminding themselves on the other that this will not be the last cake. But will it be the last? I look at their love and I feel like this could be the very last piece of it on earth and just look at it. Couch. I take my brother to his psychiatrist. We were up late, don't ask. We're pretty <laughs> fried. Waiting room has a couch, two cushy armchairs, a coffee table, end tables with magazines, and a few toys for kids. It appears both abandoned and armed. No one there but a receptionist behind glass. My brother goes in. I lie on the couch. He's in there with his psychiatrist. He's talking about his problems. Probably some involve me. I go into a grateful doze. Lady comes out from behind glass and says, will you sit up please? I can hear in her voice that it's been building. 
is it my feet? My feet are not on the couch. I was careful about that. She says, you're disturbing clients. No one's here, I say. She says, there won't be room when they come. I'll get up if they come, I say, but there's no use. I've already lost. I pick out one thing from many options relating to her appearance to scoff at silently. <laughs> I draw a parallel between two kinds of one-sided conversations. Then I think of a couple more. I picture my brother in the next room trying to come up with the truth. I picture all the people in our lives piling up in the room with him and his psychiatrist. People with real problems. If I said one more thing, the lady would invoke policy. So I sit up. Do we feel better now? <laughs> Fred. For years, a telephone pole leaned, a fear at the back of the neighborhood. That evening, they went home and poured several very even trays of ice cubes. I was dressed for the apocalypse. I was depressed for the apocalypse. I carried a bundle of dust like a nest. My heart beat in its fleshy pocket. Girls sketched one another in an auditorium. Worms had tried to make it across our porch overnight, and now they lay like something shredded, like shredded bark, but deader. My friends, looking ashen, kept waiting for the telephone. An iris wilted into a claw. A bathtub sunk in our vast yard. New, new birds gathered like, I don't know, a lack of entropy? July 4th. Got there and the ground was covered with bodies. Lay down with everyone and looked at the sky, bracing for the explosions. is past. After the apocalypse, we didn't even talk about all the crap we'd read about it before or seen in movies. Like we were embarrassed of our whole species' imagination. Even what we'd gotten right just seemed lame and obvious. It was a new taboo, talking about the predictions, uncool to do as opposed to cannibalism, which was pretty reasonable, or wanton sex, which was necessary, heroic even given the state of so many of our physiques. One night, or day, or whatever it was, we were sitting around a campfire, and I was like, what do I keep trying to remember? And it was ghost stories. I mean, never in real life did I ever actually tell a ghost story. I just saw it in so many movies, it seemed like, having been a kid, I must have done it. Like stealing cookies from a jar, which I never did either. Who has a cookie jar? No one ever again, you can bet on it. So, there we were all fucking and eating each other by the fire. And I kept having all these apocalypse stories from my childhood right there on the tip of my tongue. But for everyone's sake, I held back. <laughs> Metaphor. At the brainstem, madness hunkered like a bomb the size of a baby's fist. It was not a stone, as our ancestors believed because a stone remains stone. The bomb is scientific. Madness is mostly disintegration. The little fist is a little baby's fist. 
But if the baby wiggles its fingers, you're done for. Anything can happen to set the baby off. You can get raped, take drugs, or fall out with your mother. You can think a bad thought or a magic word. A baby can grow into all kinds of baby. You can go on with your life with the baby living in, off, or on your body. Madness <laughs> is some of your eggs that you could ovulate now or never. Madness dams the river in your dick, hair over time in a drain. I know in the end, it's not like you are one thing and madness is another. It is a sleeping fist of your own stone bomb dick damn babies. Journalist. This is a true story about a journalist, and I don't care. A long time ago, I was assisting a famous humanitarian-type professor in a course about literary and documentary ethics, and this guy Adam was enrolled. He wasn't in my discussion group. There were like eight groups and like 200 people there to listen to the lectures. But somehow, Adam decided he liked me, of all people, and started approaching me outside the beautifully repurposed soda factory where the class met. He was handsome, I knew, but for some reason it didn't matter to me, even though he was my age and had completed a degree at a fancy university I had once wanted to go to. I'd wanted to go to that university the same way you imagine you want to be a famous actress, when what you mean is that you want to feel important. So we chatted a few times I found pretty boring, and then he asked me if I would like to, I don't remember, something. So I told him no, but, if, but I was walking home, and if he wanted, he could walk with me and hang out in the yard while I was gardening. <laughs> it's worth mentioning here that I was one of the only white people living in a neighborhood with a lot of black and Mexican people. And I was one of the only people in the neighborhood who had anything to do with the university. I have been told by people in my neighborhood that I'm very, very white. <laughs> Adam, too, was white, white, white. So Adam took me up on my idea, walked along home with me, and he was cool with my dog. And it turned out he knew a lot more than I did about plants. He'd watch me and say this or that while I was poking around, and a pattern emerged. After class, he'd come up to me and say, well, I'm doing this or that, usually, usually moving things around in my garden, or taking the dog to the woods. Come along if you want. And he started teaching me about plants we passed in the woods wild white ginger, rattlesnake orchids. He brought me clippings from his place, which he was having to sell because of the divorce he was going through, and he was saddest of all to lose all his plants. One afternoon, he kissed me in the hallway near the bathroom. I was really angry about that, but then I started wondering what my problem was. He showed me a picture of his parents in a Life magazine spread from the 60s. He said they were friends with the Kennedys, he was always asking me if I thought he could be a good writer, and I said I thought he could be a good journalist. <laughs> he kept asking me, and I kept saying the same thing in different ways. So after he kissed me and I was so mad about it, part of me started wanting him to kiss me again, maybe because of the handsome part, maybe because of the university part, maybe because of the Kennedys, or maybe the knowledge of plants. And at that point, the whole dynamic shifted because he was so fucked up about his divorce, and I was just so fucked up in general. Let's see where this is going. 
Shots rang out in the neighborhood one day while I was gardening in my yard with my dog watching, and my dog was killed. It was really crazy, caught on video, a total media event. And after I made a call across the country to this one person I used to be in love with, I called Adam. He's the one who lifted my dog into my truck and drove us to the woods. And he's the one who directed the bush hog in the night to dig a hole and shine its headlamps while we moved the body. And he helped me cover the plot with rocks. The rocks were to keep it from getting dug up. Then I didn't hear from him. And then he told me in our last telephone conversation that he just couldn't take my level of pain, a phrase that stood out to me. But now he's a journalist. He has a nice place in the city and he flies all over the world and does stories about things like little brown girls being sold into prostitution. He's one of those journalists who presents every story without any ambiguity at all, who finds stories to tell in which there is no way to locate more than one way to feel about anything. <laughs> Review. These people in the photo of the war and their babies look like dirt and rags in dirt. All fell, but especially the babies, who fell into the earth the way they had always fallen into shoulders, into sleep, with small, complete weight. You understand that the bodies are dead because of angles elucidated by the photograph. You are not convinced that the stillness is not the stillness of a photograph. As the photo suggests, you can plate what is rag, what is dirt, what is body. You put yourself in there, even in babies, and you know the angles your body can't do, even with yoga. The other reason you know they're dead is it says as much on a little card next to the photograph. You have come to an exhibit of photographs that has been praised for breathing. The reviewer stopped short of announcing that the pictures make the war come to life. He composed the review after visiting an ex-lover in the hospital, a sculptor who, quote, remained in a vegetative state. In the hospital, he tried to concentrate on the sheet veiling her and not the memory of her body. She had been a sculptor on her way to revitalizing classicism. They lived in an apartment with her resin figures. He had been a photographer losing faith in his own artistic promise. Her stillness was hard to take. He remembered the camera he loved, a Nikon he'd saved up for in 1965 and still brought out sometimes, usually alone in his apartment, usually after several drinks. Once, he found a mysterious roll of film among the pieces of fruit in the bowl on his countertop and had it developed. On it, objects in his life had been rendered monumental. He had not had children. He had not gone to war. He had not made good art. But when he looked at the photograph of his kettle, he found it difficult to breathe. Barbarians. It was exciting about the economy because the economy.
economy deserved it. I was angry when they kept propping it back up, but I was scared when I lost my job altogether and found it nearly impossible to think. Soon enough, I couldn't find anything to eat. Then a guy I met went nuts, raped me, and took my dog. He kept saying it was a matter of domestic policy. That was the vocabulary of his delusion. I kept thinking maybe it could all be for the, best, for the better in the long run. I'm practical at heart. I got some guns and shot a few people I always knew were assholes, as long <laughs> as the justice system was the last thing on our minds. That did something for society and me both. I shot a police. Then I found a bourgeoisie and shot him with another bullet I had and then pretended to be giving him some beans. And then I took out the sharp edge of the, of the can and cut his wrist with it for symbolic impact. Like, you did this to yourself while his stomach was all bleeding from a bullet. <coughs> then Olivia spotted me. I'd been traveling with her and the smudgy kitten she kept in her coat pocket. And she was so pissed when she saw what I'd done that she took her kitten out and let it scratch at my eyes. She was like, you have lost all sense of perspective. That guy probably had a lot to contribute now that you fucked him up. I was just crying because of everything, physical and mental, at the same time. At first, I thought the kitten would really scratch my eyes out, but then it just patted me with its claws retracted. I felt the pats of little kitten feet and felt I was not in it alone. But I don't know how long you can keep a kitten in this scenario. Two more. Two more apocalypses. The Lonely Shard. She took her laptop into bed to look at baby animals so that the pattern was hard world, soft bed, hard computer, soft baby animals. What's inside after that was hard to tell because the telescoping stopped. She looked at baby polar bears first because that's what got it started, was feeling herself floating away from the melting iceberg mainland on her lonely shard. She moved on to puppies, a particular breed she had as a child that her parents had gotten rid of when they moved, the dog floating deeper into her past with every moment she remained alive. Her carpet was endless, but the animals were all so good and wronged that she started feeling better. But just as she started feeling better, a sick feeling seeped in to cover the inside of her stomach like fur. Just keep looking at them, she told herself. It's good for you no matter why. What would her male counterpart be doing? Looking at trucks? What would her destitute counterpart be doing? Counting stars? What would her animal counterpart be doing? Breathing, breathing, breathing. After. What was left? An enormous collection of transparencies. We couldn't be more minimal. That plastic cup, including the ice. Your lenses. A stack of tracing paper also tracing paper in the wind, and wind. Think of the bottles and bottles of water, including thinking. A matter of clear glass versus clear plastic versus gin versus vodka versus tap versus boss. A room with two doors in shotgun fashion. I'll stand in this one. I couldn't
couldn't care less. It looks like static coming down hand over fist. Now, if you stood in that opening, you'd ruin it. You can't even come in because of the enormous collection wobbling invisibly. I want to save enough time for you to make it back to the bookstore. Um, and, um, and I'll also want to remind everybody that there's a pile of books here and uh, authors who want to sign them. Lucy actually seems to have some sort of uh, stamping mechanism that she can use to... Uh, yeah. There's apocalypse stamps. Apocalypse stamps. So, uh, questions? Do you want to... I guess we can see if there are any questions first. Yeah. So we'll have to like go up and be embarrassed for that question. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's always awkward. I'm sure we can muster up a question. Uh, any questions? I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about this awkward. Do you have any questions? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do. Um, can uh, Can you talk a little bit about process and um, both of you in the sense of these new books versus the other types of work that you've done? Maybe over there. <laughs> what's different about your new book? Is that the question? Yeah, that's kind of What's different, different about your new book? Um, <laughs> you can use the mic. That's probably good. <laughs> um, well, I'm someone who kind of doesn't think about process too much, you know, beforehand, and then I kind of just figure it out as I'm going, and sort of the same thing, you know, like I start a new story and I don't know what's going on, I just see some like vague scrap of something or some void, you know, like um, hear a little bit of a void so there's some atmosphere that's kind of beckoning me and but it's it's really small and vague and then so the, the process seems to be just me um, working to for it to become more and more clear and for, you know, pathways to kind of make themselves known there and um, for the, for the characters to become clearer, for the voice, you know, it's just, it's all about it's sort of like this fake thing that I get to see get bigger and clearer. And um, and I would say, I mean, the only difference between um, I go to some Halloween creature, it's just that, you know, with creature I've written more stories, and so I, um, I'm getting, I feel like maybe closer and closer to something. Um, and now I'm trying to write a novel, and that's like a real big mess where I'm like, trying to see it clearly, but now it just has all this jump all over the place. So I just feel like a lot, it's for me like clearing space. You know, like, shh, and then like clearing it and making, I don't know. This, I guess this, the, the Apocalypse book is different from, all, all of my books are different from each other, and I hope that all of my books will always be really different from each other. Um, I try to um, I try not to do the same thing twice. I mean, of course, you always do. Like, you're just, you are who you are, and so you are the same thing twice. But, um, but I, I try not to, um, like, as soon as I notice myself doing something that I've done before, I'll, I'll stop doing it and try to think of something else to do. Um, so this book, uh, I, I didn't know ever that it was going to be a book. I was writing little, tiny, 
I, I started writing little tiny stories um, when I got a job that I, I was overwhelmed, that was overwhelming to me, and I didn't feel like an artist anymore, and I, I was scared that I'd given up being an artist for having a job, <laughs> and um, and I gave myself the task to um, write an apocalypse as quickly as possible every t every time I had a second. So if I had a second, I would just go into my notebooks and I would pull out a sentence and I'd be like, how fast can you turn this into an apocalypse? And I had a little challenge for myself and it was a game for like making something as big as possible happen as, as in as small a space as possible and then playing with all the different permutations of those ideas of beginnings and endings and bigness and smallness. And a lot of it came, was rooted in the very um, trip across the country that I drove myself across the country and I let myself go and take a while to do it. Like I sort of would pick a landscape and drive toward it and then pick another landscape and drive toward it across the country um, with my dog. And, um, and to get to this job that then ruined my life as an artist. And so I, and so I, um, and, I, and while I was driving across the country, I started looking at these like seemingly unpeopled landscapes. Because when you're in a car, you don't, and you're doing secondary highways, and even if you're driving through a city at night, you know, like it's as if things feel more uninhabited than they are. Even if you drive past somebody in a car, there's really just the idea of another person in there. There's no real people. If you go into the little shop and get your next pack of gum because you're trying to pick, quit smoking, and, um, and it's just like this idea of a person behind the counter and then they're gone. And um, so I started thinking like, what what would you write if you were gonna write an apocalypse narrative, if you were gonna write an apocalypse story? Um, and I couldn't, and every time I came up with an idea, I thought, well, that's a cute idea, but like, I don't wanna spend like 10 years on it, right? Like <laughs> writing a big, fat apocalypse novel. So I just thought, why pick, right? Like, because otherwise I'd spend my whole life trying to pick the right apocalypse book to write. So I just, just would make any idea I had was good enough. <laughs> I had a question about one of the pieces that you read, Lucy, like one of the shorter ones felt a lot like, oh, that could be a poem. Um, and I was curious if you, if either of you ever wrote poetry, and then also like where you draw the line between your prose and your poetry. Well, um, uh, I had, I had, when I was sort I, I wrote all, all my life and I didn't think about if I was writing my journal, I would think I was writing, and then if I was writing a poem, I would think I was writing, and if I was writing a story, I'd think I was writing. And then when I got to college, I took some writing classes, and it was the first time that, like, a poetry teacher said, like, oh, you're a poet, and then a fiction teacher was like, you're a fiction writer. And then, um, and I started thinking about that. And it was pretty clear to me that I thought I was a fiction writer. And I think it was because much as I loved, much as I love poetry and much as I like sound and much as I like um, density and much as I like rhythm, um, I was never able to find for myself, like I, I go to poetry readings and I like poetry that has to be a poem that like could not be a paragraph and do the work that it does. Um, and I, and so I keep thinking I'm a, I'm a fiction writer until there's something that fiction can't accommodate. And what that's meant is that I'm a kind of fiction writer that keeps trying to like increase what fiction can accommodate for me. 
Yeah, I feel very close to that idea just of um, not wanting to put limits on myself, you know, in terms of, I identify as a fiction writer, and, you know, when I was applying to graduate school, I was like, should I apply for poetry or fiction? Because I had written both, and I didn't really know, you know, what I was, but it, I chose fiction, and it kind of became clear that that was the right space for me. I read a lot of poetry, and I feel that um, I have a relationship to it in my writing, and, you know, I, you know, I'm a fiction writer who cares about language and um, does not necessarily care about telling stories. I mean, I like reading stories and I'm interested in narrative, but, you know, I, I did come to a realization not so long ago that I'm not, I'm not a storyteller, even though I kind of, you know, stories are what I write. Um, and, you know, I too am very interested in what fiction can do or, um, you know, sometimes sometimes I'll get upset because there'll be a certain writer who who I think is writing prose, and then everyone, like the poetry community, claims them, and I'm like, no, no, like why not? You know, like fiction can do these things too. It's not just you know. Um, and when I say that, I know I'm uh, I'm kind of making fun of myself by you know getting upset in that way. But um, but but sometimes I feel like if writing is doing a certain thing, it's it's seen as kind of the territory of poetry where I actually feel like fiction can contain it also you know, or be in conversation with it in that way, so. Where do you get inspiration for your characters and your stories? <laughs> 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 yeah. um, well, it's probably, um, characters probably come as mixes of things, you know, like they might be character might be partly related to someone I know, but but also not. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I'm, I don't think about character that much when I write, and of course I have them, um, you know, in my, in my stories and on this novel I'm trying to write, but I think I'm often more interested in the moments between characters or between, you know, because in a lot of my writing so far I've been kind of interested in closeness and distance, sometimes between people. And so character will kind of come in, you know, in that way. But I have a lot of, um, in my stories, I have a lot of sort of flat husbands. And, you know, I'm married and my husband was sort of worried. He was like, is everyone going to think, you know, like, this is me, that I'm this, the husbands in your stories? And they're not him at all. <laughs> um, but, you know, it makes him nervous because, like, that first story I wrote, he makes involved salads and he does have a lot of plants in his study. But he's not that husband, and I'm not that character, you know. But, um, but I do sort of pull certain things in. But it, um, one thing that I sort of felt happen um, with this book in particular is that sometimes people really think that the stories are mostly autobiographical, and so you know, someone did ask one of my friends once, like, "Is Amar those husbands?" You know, and so sometimes people think that. But anyway. something earlier about like um, how you start off writing and it's like a, I don't know, you used nice words for it, it was like a sense or a, a shadow yeah, like a or scrap. a scrap, right? Um, I, that rings true to me too, that like it's a, I, you know, I think that I write from sensibility, from like a, um, a like a, I was thinking about it the other day, and I thought it was, I would call it like a, like a story feeling, like I would have a feeling, and it would seem like a fiction kind of feeling, you know? 
I, I, the, one of the, the things that writers say that I never identify with at all is when they say that they want to like capture something in writing or capture somebody in writing. I think it's so violent <laughs> and like I don't want to do that at all. Um, and so I, I, I haven't confronted character um, directly. I'm usually trying to confront things like a situation or like a sound that sounds like a human voice and then I'll like keep following that sound and then the thing that becomes the character will come out of that but it comes out of the word and the sound it doesn't come from me imagining some person walking around in a classroom and then I lift them out of the classroom and stuff them into an adventure like I just don't I don't do that um, um, in part because I think I, I would be failing from the start like when I have done something like like thought here's an extraordinary thing that happened in my life with these people that I know intimately and care for and I want and I want to write about it in some way um, I it's hard because I a lot of the work that I have to do is divorce the human people from the words because I don't want to do injustice to either of them because they're entirely different experiences like one is the in the untransferable experience of life, the thing that's stuck in your skull and your body. And the other is like the other thing that writing does that's in relation to it or because of it, but it's it's like it's like that and it's also in motion like that. It's not a static relationship. So. Maybe one more question. Well, I'm an animal lover, so there's that. Um, they're important to me, animals. But I mean, one of the interesting things, but I don't know, I don't know why, you know, outside of that, but one of the interesting things to me in writing a book is that you kind of see what you're interested in. I mean, not that. I go around not knowing what I'm interested in, but you see certain things kind of, you know, happen a lot. So like, and I go to some hollow, my editor was like, do you know you have 14 instances of hand-holding in this book? And then I was like, well, I don't really want to have all those instances of hand-holding, so I got rid of a bunch of them. And, and there are things too, you know, in, in Creature that kind of pop up, but um, I guess, you know, it's, ne it's not planned, but, but I think I'm very interested in animals, and so it's just sort of like a natural, you know, I, I feel like when I'm, I'm not a writer who can work on multiple projects at once, like there's no way, like I'm writing a novel right now and there's no way I could write a short story at the same time because it's almost like, um, not necessarily like me as a person going through life, like this experience happens, this experience happens, this experience happens and it all comes into what I'm writing, but still, like there's some conversation between me as a writer person who, they, you know, like, something's important to me or I experience, or I don't know, like I see something in a movie and it just kind of comes in. So I think it's just that, like I, animals are there and they just, I'm in conversation with them. And I thought a lot about animals in my fiction. I love animals too. And I also get, um, like, if you want to bring out my most obnoxious and like, desperate to be right but nobody would believe me it's on like things that have to do with animals like I just think that it's so so fucked up that animals uh, that people think about animals the way I see them thinking about animals and that they're just 
they either get personified or they get to be stand-ins for human feelings or they get like um, or they get turned into like uh, tests for human relationships or um, or turned into or they get put on pedestals right where they're they're just like they're Indians you know but they're animals but they're it, it's it, and I said that in that mean way that mean Indian way that you hear me right <laughs> um, but do you know what I mean like where what you're doing is dehumanizing something but dehumanizing something is a really messed up term also because you can do you can dehumanize animals as, as much so I think about that a lot and I don't and I think about like why like where are animals in relation to people in relation to objects and I think a lot about people and objects and animals and how they're like and how they are alike and how they're not alike and I want them all to have a sort of um, I want them to have not a like an equal weight, but you know the human consciousness wins because it's language and it's reading, it's books, and we make books. But yeah, there's a book called Creaturely Poetics. I don't know if you've read it, but there's this thing about just the human gaze on animals. I mean, we talk, you know, there's like the male gaze, like that kind of gets talked about, but um, just how exact kind of what you're saying, you know, like that animals become these things to look at in zoos, you know, like they become stuffed animals, they become, you know but just forgetting that animals look at us too, and that was really interesting to me, just this, you know, that animals watch us, and what do they, you know, like, what are they seeing when they look at us, and, I don't know, sometimes my cat and I will just stare at each other, <laughs> it's sort of intense, I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> like one, there's a little story in my book where um, somebody imagines, it's about people who are talking in the voice of their, voices of dogs, you know, a person trying to interact with a person who's speaking in the voice of their dog. I think that's hilarious. It's not the voice of your dog, but but like that thing when you go to a dog park and you watch people trying to interpret, and they, they're trying somehow to imagine the consciousness of something that they know is connected to them, but they also know it is not connected to them. And it brings out how you make assumptions like, as if I can see through your eyes just because you're human, you know, and, and it's, it dramatizes that in a way that's really complicated and compelling. Yeah. I think that's how <laughs> So there's books, please buy them and get them signed.